Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in the Historico Galley section of Melbourne, Florida. It's also made possible by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, the new novel, Reparation, by Ruth Rogers. I certainly think that we need to have a conversation in this country about uh, race relations. We've, we've come a long way since the 1940s, but we still have a long way to go, too. We'll discuss 19th century Florida money. Well, the oldest banknote or uh, currency note that we have actually dates from uh, September of 1837. And it was issued by the Lake Wimico and St. Joseph Canal and Railroad Company. And visit wooden Gothic churches in Florida. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. It's sad, so sad, with the sad, sad situation. And it's getting more and more absurd. It's sad, so sad. Why can't we talk it over? Oh, it seems to me that sorrow seems to be the hardest word. As innocent four-year-olds in the late 1940s, Katie, who is white, and Delia, an African-American girl, become best friends despite societal pressures against them. In 1960, when the girls are 16, Kate abandons her childhood friend when she is needed most. In 2006, Kate is working to earn Delia's forgiveness as danger surrounds the women's reunion. That's the premise of the new novel Reparation by Ruth Rogers. Although the novel is not based on specific actual events, it does reflect reality in Florida from the 1940s to the present. Ruth Rogers says the novel is based on her own experiences growing up in rural North Florida. My father was a farmer. Um, he did have a sharecropping family. Um, they did not live on our pro- well. They lived on our property, but not adjacent to where we were living. They lived about a mile away, and um, they did have child. They they were a young family with young children, but the children were younger than I was. Uh, so I didn't form a friendship with the children. I knew the children, and uh, we also had a black family who lived just down the road from us. Um, and who had children close to my age, but we never formed close friendships because society did not allow such things. And uh, but we knew them. And uh, black families and white families worked together. Um, our main money crop was tobacco, and when we gathered tobacco, all the families got together and and helped one another. And um, we worked with black uh, people. And, but we never socialized with them. Of course, schools were segregated, uh, movie theaters, were, everything was segregated. So there was no socialization. It was very much frowned upon. 
Tracy Moore is vice president of the Florida Historical Society and was one of the first people to evaluate the manuscript of reparation for possible publication. One of the things I think about this book that was sort of unique was that in life you do develop relationships from childhood to adulthood. And um, and then this particular book, it was about the relationship of um, two people from two different uh, races. And she uh, really had... Um, a real friendship in her heart initially for this young lady and this young girl as girl to girl. And as children play, um, that initial, um, you're, you're my friend, you're my best friend type of thing happens. And, you know, you wear each other's clothes, just something between you that, that you, um, feel that this is our bond. And she created a lot of bonds with this young lady as children. They did. And so to come back to the town, and, you know, have to rebuild on those old feelings and then have that conflict there, that struggle of how do we get back to that bond, um, carries the suspense of this story. The novel Reparation is written from the first-person perspective of Kate as she flashes back through her childhood. The reader sees Kate's beliefs about racial equality strengthen over time. I am the same age as uh, the character in the story. Uh, so when I was a teenager, when the... Uh, civil rights movement uh, became uh, widespread. And I shared uh, the views that Kate does in the story of uh, feeling uh, that civil rights was uh, an important issue and that blacks should have the same rights as white people. And um, But I was not outspoken about my views because they were not popular views at that time. And I think Looking back, uh, I think a lot of liberal Southerners feel a sense of guilt that we didn't do more, that we uh, kept our views to ourselves, and that we let um, culture dictate to us uh, how to behave and what we should do and what we shouldn't do. As you read the book, you realize that um, she's looking at uh, life through a, a child's uh, view. Tracy Moore. And she sees, um, you know, as, as, as we all do, we live through how our family feels about a particular subject or a particular people. Uh, so she's looking at life through uh, somewhat of the eyes of um, what's around her. And so she sees that as um, the, the beginning framework in this book. But as you said, as she uh, develops as an adult, she realizes some of her views and the views that were around her uh, were not accurate. And so she then starts thinking about, um, you know, how she felt. You know, were, were they real feelings? Were they uh, uh, opportunities in her life that she could have done things differently? And to me, that um, kind of opens the, the whole uh, premise of this book up. It uh, op- it gives the opportunity for an individual to think uh, of your subconsciousness, of uh, what it is that you're doing um, daily. Uh, it gives an individual an opportunity to think about, well, yeah, uh, some, maybe some of those things did happen to me as a, as a child. And I may have reacted a particular way as a child, but now as an adult, I could have done something differently, you know. And and this, I think, is is somewhat what makes this book real interesting. The novel Reparation has a warning label on the cover informing readers that the offensive and racially charged N-word appears in the book. Use of the word is particularly shocking when it comes from four-year-old Katie near the beginning of the story. Author Ruth Rogers. 
As a four-year-old, this was the word that Katie would have heard from her parents. Uh, this is the word that she would have called black people, and she wouldn't have had any other word to use. This, this was the word that her parents used, her grandparents used, her neighbors used, everybody around her used. And it was very common in, in the area in which I grew up. And uh, to her, it's just a descriptive term. It's not a derogatory term because she has no other word to replace it with. And and I wanted to show that uh, to, sh to show how widespread it was and how the culture of the times, children absorbed that as they were growing up, and, and they didn't have anything to compare it with. Um, they didn't know any other uh, culture other than what they grew up in, especially in the rural South. Uh, we didn't have access. Uh, this is before TV and, and uh, computers, and, and there wasn't any access to the outside world. Well, initially, it was difficult to read because as an African-American, uh, whenever that word is being used, whether it's uh, written or said, um, it still brings back uh, reflections of your own personal experience with the word. So you have to um, uh, somehow kind of understand in, as you're reading this book um these were the things that were done around her. These were the words that were said around her. So she may very easily have felt that it was a word she could use. But uh, but as you read through this book, you will understand that um, she finds that um, maybe she shouldn't have been uh, using those words. She never really... Um, kept that in her heart, so to speak. Uh, she heard it, she said it maybe uh, one or two times herself or in some content, but she did not keep that as a, a, a total feeling towards this young girl who she thought was a friend and felt was a friend. And, and finally, uh, don't want to give the uh, end of the book out, but, uh, but realized there was truly a friendship there. The novel Reparation was being prepared for publication just as discussions about race relations in Florida and the nation were reigniting. As the book was going to print, President Barack Obama spoke about the verdict in the Trayvon Martin case, the Supreme Court weakened the Voting Rights Act, the 50th anniversary of the March on Washington was celebrated, and celebrity chef Paula Deen's career imploded. Author Ruth Rogers and FHS Vice President Tracy Moore both believe that this novel can add something to the conversation about race. Yes, I certainly hope so. When I started writing the novel, of course, that was several years ago and before all of this. And it just happened that as the novel was being published, that all of these things seemed to just be happening one right after the other. And uh, I certainly think that we need to have a conversation in this country about uh, race relations. We've, we've come a long way since the 1940s, but we still have a long way to go, too. Well, I think it will. Um, when I initially um, picked up the book and was asked to, uh, to read it, and I saw the title of the book, um, my first impression was, well, is this a book about something that's coming back to uh, a reparation that's coming to... Uh, back to the African-American community, so to speak. And I didn't see it initially as a uh, one-on-one story. So I think it adds uh, a conversation in a, in a sense that 
really it does start one on one and that you have to have a conversation with self and maybe think about, OK, what is it that I've done in the past that, um, you know, maybe uh, was not quite, um, you know, the right thing to do or the right thing to say, uh, because the word uh, is the N word is used uh, because it gives you the opportunity to, to think about, well, uh, what was my reaction to it? Um, uh, how did I move past it? Um, how do I deal with it being used in today's society? Um, how do I uh, move forward with, uh, you know, whether I think it's the proper word to use or not to use? Even with all the renewed discussion about race today, many young people seem to be unaware of what life was like for African Americans in the mid-20th century. Yeah, I hope young people will uh, read the book and uh, discover some things about our history that they probably have read about in history books, but they haven't really seen the day-to-day effects of it on the people who lived through that time. And I hope that people, um, both uh, white and African-American, will read the book and um, learn some lessons from it. A lot of uh, kids are uh, not aware of some of the um, practices and normal things that took place during uh, the early 50s, 60s, 30s, 40s, actually, uh, didn't change much until after the 60s. And so it really gives them another insight into, um, you know, what uh, the environment was at the time. But I think more than anything that if um, um, stories such as this one and stories that we see in the press today are things that um, that will draw the attention back to our history so that we are not repeating our history, uh, are very important, and you know, and I think this 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 opportunity to have an open discussion about it is is always good. It's always good to be able to sit down and say, "Well, these things happened to me." I can sit down personally and tell stories to some of my nieces and nephews and others who are are, are younger than me, and they don't believe it, you know. But we're seeing more stories in the media. We're seeing movies made like The Butler and some of the other movies that are out there right now that are telling uh, stories that are relevant so that people will understand the history of why certain things happen uh, and, and the quality of, of um, moving towards uh, a better life, uh, um, uh, you know, for us treating each other in a better way. While race relations in Florida is at the heart of this novel, Reparation is also an exciting and suspenseful book as racial injustices of the past catch up to the present. Author Ruth Rogers. Yeah, I wanted it to be uh, to have some plot, some some conflict, and and to have some excitement, and um, to keep readers reading, to to and uh, to have uh, Kate figure out some way that she could make an atonement, a reparation for her failure to act all these years ago. And so I wanted I had to have a villain in the story. Uh, so, yeah, I was working to, to try to make it as exciting and, and suspenseful as I could. The new novel, Reparation, by Ruth Rogers, is available at fhspress.org or as a Kindle ebook. What have I got to do? What have I got to do? And Siren seems to be the hardest one.
This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find out about upcoming events, order great books like Reparation, listen to archived editions of this program, and more. Click on the Join Now button to receive our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, our newsletter, the Society Report, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. The state of Florida issued its own money throughout the 19th century. Ben DiBiase is Educational Resources Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Well, the oldest banknote or uh, currency note that we have actually dates from uh, September of 1837, and it was issued by the Lake Wimico and St. Joseph Canal and Railroad Company, uh, which operated uh, in Florida, north central Florida, from about 1837 until 1839. Uh, and the note itself is uh, uh, fairly unassuming. It's, it's about uh, half the size of a, of a regular dollar bill. Uh, the, the paper is white, and in the center there's a, uh, an etching of a, a sailing ship. Uh, and then, of course, on the bottom, uh, the description of what the note is. Uh, it says, uh, we'll pay to uh, the bearer $10 in current banknotes on demand at their office in St. Joseph uh, at 6% uh, per annual from this date. What's also interesting is about uh, this early currency is that they're all hand-signed, uh, generally by the uh, secretary of the company and then the president of the company. Now, in the early 19th century, cities in Florida actually issued their own currency. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. It's hard to believe now, but uh, you know, at that time when Florida was still a territory, and even when Florida became a state after 1845, cities would issue uh, their own currency, banks would issue their own currency, uh, of course, railroad companies would issue their own currency, uh, and it became sort of a form of exchange. So, in times uh, of of depression, uh, say in particular in 1837, uh, when gold and silver was in short supply. Banks and cities would issue and print their own notes. Uh, we have a few of those, uh, one of which is from Tallahassee. Uh, we have one issued by the Tallahassee Railroad Company. And uh, we start to see this progression uh, in Florida currency. that They become more um, elaborately uh, designed. We have a, a picture here of a uh, it looks like a stranded sailor um, with, a, with an anchor, and he's looking longingly into the ocean, and there's a a small image of a, of a woman uh, looks like she's thinking about this lost sailor. Uh, it's actually printed with a, a sort of a green print, and that w- would sort of help with security uh, and help to fight the uh, uh, counterfeiting of currency. Uh, but it was really interesting. You see that kind of progression as as Florida uh, as the the economy in Florida grows. Now, during the Civil War, Florida, of course, was the the third state to secede from the Union. And during the Civil War, Florida had its own Confederate money, right? That's correct. Uh, Florida seceded in uh, early in 1861, January of 1861. Um, But there were some some issues, and it actually wasn't until uh, late in the year, about October, that they started printing um, their own money. 
And the, the Confederate money really makes up the majority of the collection that we have here at the Florida Historical Society. Uh, they date from about 1861. The latest one we have is from 1864, although Florida continued to print money through 1865. Um, what's interesting, too, is that you can kind of track the, the progression of the war through the currency. You know, in 1861, these notes were very uh, brilliantly uh, illustrated. A lot of them were actually printed up in Richmond um, and were sent down to Florida. They're all hand-signed um, by the uh, state treasurer and also by the governor, John Milton. Uh, they have his signature uh, on every note. But then when you get towards late 1864 or 65, um, you start to see these very plain notes again, similar to what we saw back in the 1830s. Looks like they were very rapidly printed uh, towards the end of the war. Uh, but what's also interesting when we look at these notes is the uh, the illustrations that are depicted. Um, and I've got one here that's uh, about the size of a, of a modern uh, $1 bill. It's a $1 note uh, dated March 1st, 1863. And in the center, very prominently placed in the center, uh, there's an image of an African-American slave in a cotton field, uh, moving cotton across the field. In the background, you can see there's a, a white overseer who's sort of pointing uh, towards the, the plantation house. Um, it's very interesting, you know, and, and a lot of people don't think about Florida as, as being a Confederate state or, or a cotton-producing state, uh, but, but you can see that through, through the money, where the, the importance was placed, right, in, in this part of the economy during the Civil War. Now, when did cash, as, as we would recognize it today, uh, come into being uh, money printed by the United States? Well, that's really interesting. Uh, it really wasn't until uh, the mid-20th century that you had this standardized uh, federal currency. So Florida was still printing money through the rest of the, through Reconstruction in the late 19th century into the 20th century and really up through the, the Great Depression uh, when we had a, a, a companies struggling to, to, to figure out and, and state governments struggling to figure out how to um, uh, how to valueize uh, you know the currency because at that point when we had sort of these highs and lows in, in the uh, in the economy uh, they had to kind of come up with inventive ways and, and just started printing their own money and when there was no laws against that and you can do that they took advantage of it well, we have a whole pile of cash here but I guess we uh, can't spend any of it huh no, unfortunately not. What's interesting, we have a lot of people, researchers come in, or, or even just visitors. I have uh, uh, school kids that come in, and they always say, well, what is it worth now? Um, and it's interesting. It, it really varies. The first note that I talked about, um, the uh, Lake Wimico uh, and St. Joseph line, 1837 note, uh, it's it's one of only three that we know exists. Um, so it's incredibly rare. And a note like that is worth you know tens of thousands of dollars. But interestingly enough, the Confederate money, uh, some of the $1, $10 notes, uh, you can pick up, uh, and collectors really like them, you can pick them up for about $75. Interesting. Well, thanks a lot, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Educational Resources Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers. Wooden Gothic churches can still be found in Florida, some dating back more than a century. Robert Casanello from robertcasanello.com has more. Since this was a particularly popular style for rural people and rural communities, and since wood was available in Florida, and that's no, obviously no stone, they uh, began to build these little churches, uh, wooden churches, in the Gothic style. That was Dr. Jack Lane, professor emeritus of history at Rollins College. He was speaking about the popularity of Gothic-style churches throughout Florida. Dr. Lane stumbled upon one of these churches while doing some other research in the early history of Rollins College. 
He tells us how this sparked an interest for further research into the popularity of this architectural style. When I was doing the history of Rollins, I, came, the, I found out that Rollins started its first classes at the Congregational Church here in Winter Park because the, the classroom building had not been finished. And I saw a photograph of that and I thought, boy, that is really a beautiful little church. It had been torn down and wasn't here anymore. And then I said, you know, I'd like to find out a little more about that. And what I found out was that at least 50 or 60 of those little churches were built throughout Florida, along the, particularly along the St. John's River Valley in the late 19th century. And many of them are still in existence. And so I thought, this is too good not to do something about because these are really just incredibly little artistic gems that are kind of hidden from sight. When we sat down with Dr. Lane, he told us why these churches are called Carpenter Gothic. The reason they're called Carpenter Gothic churches is because the plans were so simple that local carpenters could build them very easily. And so when a local group got together, they would get the plans and then the local people and the carpenters themselves would make adjustments to it in ways they wanted to do, in ways that met their needs. Dr. Lane told us about the characteristics these churches share and the features that might be distinct from church to church. It's wooden. The, there's a very steep pitched roof, right? And the distinguishing a feature of them, the most distinguishing feature, is its um, pointed windows, lancet windows they are called. And they're almost always stained glass windows too, which you can't see from the outside, but if you go inside with the light striking them, they're really beautiful. But every one of them has a little different aspect to it, a little different quality to it. It has something added here, something there. There's one up in Fruitland that was built by a group of English settlers that is very ornate on the outside. I think it's one of the most beautiful ones. And then the others, the, like the one at Enterprise, it's just a simple little church. I mean, it just, they just used, the, they used as little material as they possibly could. They built it as simply as they possibly could in its structure and its symmetry. It's just gorgeous. Dr. Lane informed us that this style dates back hundreds of years and was ideal to communities on Florida's burgeoning 19th century frontier because each town could adapt the structure to fit its finances and resources. That Gothic style of architecture reaches deep back into the Christian religion and the origins of Christianity with the uh, famous Gothic churches in, uh, in Europe. In the late 19th century, there was sort of a revival of this kind of architecture on the theory that, or the belief that, this was the most expressive architecture for Christian churches. And so it was Richard Upjohn who began to build in this style, he built a Trinity Church in, um, in New York, was the architect of it. And then little churches around the country love that style and so they asked him to design churches for them but he understood that um, they couldn't afford these brick churches and many of them were in rural areas that had no stone or any such thing so he 
uh, he got the idea of designing these kinds of churches, the style of church, using wood, which was very original. And he designed some for these churches, and it caught on in the late 19th century. Although Richard Upjohn and others involved in popularizing this style of architecture had economics and availability of resources in mind, these were not the only factors that made Carpenter Gothic ubiquitous in Florida's small towns and rural places. Dr. Lane tells us another factor that made this specific style desirable to local parishes. In the belief of most uh, Protestant denominations, of this period is that that style of architecture, as I mentioned, expressed more expressed Christian beliefs. But it was also the kind of building and church structure that would be very, very expressive, uh, have, a, have a kind of beautiful, uh, a beautiful style of architecture, and at the same time would be affordable. These little towns couldn't afford very much else anyway. And many of the frontiers were building these kinds of churches, but they were just little square boxes, okay? And these churches, because there, because there were plans available for them, were really uh, uh, expressive little churches. So they, uh, they were drawn to it. That was Dr. Jack Lane, and I'm Robert Casanello with Florida Frontiers. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. You can always visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org and get a daily update about Florida history by liking our Facebook page at Florida Historical Society. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in the Historic O'Galley section of Melbourne, Florida. It's also made possible by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.